0: You are listening to the Adventures in Advising podcast with Colm Cronin and Matt Markin. Are you passionate about working with students and making a difference in their lives? Join us as we bring together and interview those in the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and their own advising stories. We thank you for checking out our podcast. Stay up to date and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Advising Podcast. Now, without further ado, here's the episode. (laughs)
1: Hello and welcome to Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin.
0: And hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Markin. Welcome to episode 13. Unlucky for some, hopefully not for us, Matt. (laughs) You don't have hotels that have the 13th
1: floor? Uh, Less of a a thing in Ireland, though there are superstitions around magpies and the need to salute a magpie and this is something that some of our international students actually comment on when they come to Ireland is how Irish people and people in the UK will seriously salute a magpie so that you'll be walking down the street and then they'll like salute a magpie or they'll tell you they'll point out the number of magpies that they see because it has a meaning (laughs) what's the reason behind that it's a rhyme that you learn see magpies are, they love shiny uh, partic- jewelry, so there is this superstition that if you don't salute the magpie, the magpie will come and steal from from your house. It's
0: interesting. So what's new over in Ireland?
1: Ireland is, I suppose, well into phase two of our reopening, and we've actually sped up some of the phases, so... We're going to see pretty much all our shops reopen. By the time people are listening to this tomorrow, all the shopping centers will have reopened. And we see hairdressers and barber shops reopening on the 29th of June now. And that's also the time where we will be allowed to travel anywhere in the country. So right now we can travel anywhere in our own county, I guess, like similar to a state or you know within a 20 kilometer radius but we are uh, restricted uh you know within that within that so i think a lot of people are looking forward to the 29th of june as an opportunity to meet with friends and family and an opportunity to finally hug loved ones and family members what about you in california
0: for us, as more states are reopening, some states are already seeing an uptick in coronavirus cases. And I think right now we're at 2 million, the 2 million mark of those who have been affected with the virus. And unfortunately, I mean, the CDC is saying that some projections show that the death rate could increase to 130,000 by, by July 4th. So that's just in you know a few weeks, a little scary there. But then that leads to, are we seeing a second wave? According to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, he said that a recent increase in coronavirus cases in a number of states is not necessarily a second spike. However, when we start to see increases in hospitalization, that's a surefire situation that you've got to play or pay close attention to. So that's something Fauci said uh, to CNN the other day. But like in California, gyms and hotels, outdoor museums, movie theaters, film and TV production, day camps, and professional sports without live audiences are back open again. Massage parlors and nail salons are supposed to be opening up this week in some counties, uh, but the Big news uh, to a lot of Disneyland fans is uh, Disneyland um, is supposed to be opening back up in July. So a lot of excitement there, especially for those annual pass holders. And of course, all these uh, places are open or opening soon with restrictions. Yeah, I mean for
1: for us, I suppose we still have the three week window between each of the phases, so we're still monitoring what is happening unfortunately we we are still seeing some people die from covid-19 but there has been uh, an enormous reduction in the the number of of new cases in ireland but everyone is anxious around that that second wave and i guess we're we're all sort of i think everyone feels a little bit in a holding pattern at, at the moment as we kind of wait to see as places reopen, will there will there be a spike? You've mentioned it in, in some places. And I suppose in Ireland, we, we're looking to, to see if that will, will be the case. They've also begun to, I think, break it down here by postal district in Dublin. So it, it probably gives a, a little bit of a, a clearer understanding to, to people. But it seems like there is kind of more of an understanding of the virus. And That is something that obviously, hopefully will continue. And I know that there's certainly the news I have seen is the talk around the vaccine trials. Some of them seem to be going quite well. So that's probably something to keep an eye on as well.
0: Yeah, I think there's like two that are further in the clinical trials. So here's the hoping. I just want to hear some good news with that. But from a university standpoint, we just finished our spring quarter last week. So I'm assuming a lot of students who are happy the quarter is over, but still probably bummed that there wasn't an in-person graduation ceremony. Um, our summer sessions start next week, which is all online. And we're still looking at the fall semester being mostly, if not all, online. Um, our university had an online memorial service tribute to George Floyd and various speakers talking about how it this impacts our campus as well as the county and the world. And later this week, our College of Arts and Letters will be hosting a panel as part of their talk series that that they've been doing. And so this one's actually called Structural Racism, Civil Disobedience, and the Road to Racial Justice in the Age of COVID-19. So the description of this talk is, it states, uh, faculty panelists will share their personal and professional experiences while discussing what they can do to help students navigate this critical moment for racial equality and social justice in America. So I'm really looking forward to um, listening to this one uh, later this week. And I think we've found or seen many institutions jump to the opportunity to either start or continue having these conversations, which is so, so important, especially right now. And I believe even like the University of California system, the UC system held a moment of silence uh, across all UC campuses last week.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we have seen, I suppose, some protests and vigils in Europe as well. I I know there was an enormous protest in Paris yesterday. And I know as well, Matt, that I think NACADA are going, the social justice advising community are going to be holding a webinar on the 24th of June. So for any listeners who are interested, you can certainly get more details on that on the Nakata website.
0: Yeah, and speaking of Nakata, uh, they do have, I think four, yeah, four free webinars available on their YouTube channel uh, related to these topics. So uh, one of them is called Academic Advising and Social Justice, Privilege, Diversity, and Student Success. Uh, they have a second one called Expanding Your Comfort Zone, Strategies for Developing Cultural Competence in Academic Advising, uh, another one uh, called Ally Development and Advocacy Empowerment for Academic Advisors, and also the virtual keynote from Dr. Tyrone Howard, Why Equity Matters. So all those actually are free on the Nakata YouTube channel. So yeah, check it
1: out. Excellent. That's a great resource to have. Um, So as we move on with our episode, is there anyone that you would like to give a shout out to?
0: Yes, for sure. Shout out goes to Ali Moringa. Uh, If I'm saying that correctly, if I'm not, I am sorry, uh, from University of Utah. Allie reached out to us on Instagram and said, just wanted to pop by and say hello and how much I've been loving the podcast, especially without our conferences this spring. It's been a great way to have the inspiration from hearing from colleagues and get new ideas flowing. You are appreciated. Well, Allie, you are appreciated. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for your comment and thank you for listening to the podcast and hope you continue to enjoy listening to our podcast. Truly appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Ali. And I want to give a shout out to Maeve Casey from Aparto, who are a purpose-built student accommodation provider. Maeve got in touch with me on LinkedIn after listening to some of the episodes of the podcast. And she actually invited me to a staff meeting that Aparto held. And I suppose wanted to have an advising perspective as they were looking ahead to the next academic year and trying to plan for supporting students. So Cheers to to Mae for listening and
0: for getting in touch. Yes, thank you. Thank you. So in this episode, we have two great interviews with two great people. We have Dwan Jackson from the Susie Chancellor's office as well as Casey Self from Arizona State University.
1: Yeah, I think two really fascinating interviews. I think our interview with DeWan is the longest interview we have done to date. And She is somebody who we probably could have talked for another hour. And I think she would have offered us further insights. Right, Matt?
0: Yeah, what's nice about Duan's interview is most times we have time constraints when we're doing the interviews. So let's say someone has a student appointment or a meeting. uh, We're very limited on how long the interview can be. But the stars seem to have aligned with this one, and all of us had a little bit extra time to spend to record. And I think it was very beneficial.
2: Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game, wherever you podcast.
1: Absolutely, and as we learned... As she moved into the new role, she started literally as the COVID-19 pandemic, I guess, took hold. And so her first day, she had to pick up a laptop and then go home. So kudos to Dewan for, I guess, being able to handle that situation and juggle everything and still for finding time to chat to us. I really think that there are some phenomenal insights in this. So maybe we should go right into that and hear from Duan.
0: So it's my great honor to introduce our next guest, and that is Dewan Jackson. Dewan serves as an inaugural interim director of student advising initiatives in the Department of Student Affairs and Enrollment Management at the California State University Office of the Chancellor. In this role, she serves at the system-wide level to support campuses with advising, coaching, mentoring, and orientation. She works collaboratively with campuses to promote and enhance student success. Previously, Dewan worked at CSU Long Beach as the Executive Director of University Academic Advisement. Her career at CSU Long Beach spans 30 years. She supported students in need of math and English support, first generation students, student athletes, and undeclared exploring students, as well as coordinated campus wide advising initiatives. Currently, Dewan serves on the Nakata Membership Committee for Region 9 and is a member of the WASC Senior College University Commission Assessment Leadership Academy Cohort 8. She earned both a BA and an MA in English, as well as a Master's of Public Administration from CSU Long Beach. Duan, welcome to Adventures in Advising.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Matt and Colin. I really appreciate this opportunity. We are
1: absolutely delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you and with that bio, we are gonna have a whole host of stuff to <laughs> dig into, but maybe before we we start delving into that, um, I know we had discussed uh, before we started recording that you had a pretty interesting start to your your current role. So how how are things in in this COVID nineteen world?
2: You know, it's really interesting. And my first day, I went into the job, checked in with HR. You know, your normal process was handed my computer, my monitor and some other things and said, hey, go home and get set up and log in. And I was like, okay. So um, it's really been interesting. Everyone has been so kind and welcoming and reaching out to me via Zoom to kind of meet me. And I was introduced at the staff meeting recently. So that was nice. So finally getting to meet colleagues, but it's definitely a different world to not be able to interact and you know, like pop into someone's office or their cubicle or something and i'm a very collaborative person and i really enjoy that part of my job so we're just finding new and interesting ways to collaborate via zoom and, and other you know modes but so far it's been fantastic like i said everyone has been so kind and welcoming and i think they were ready for me to kind of come on board For the advising piece and to be able to guide and to, and to um, provide some insights to the world of, especially when things happen a little bit differently on a campus. So, um, I'm there hopefully as a resource for them so they can help shape things the way that they're wanting to. But so far, so good. It was been, it's been
0: great. Yeah. And that advising piece, of course, as we know, uh, working in academic advising is such an important part and integral part to a student success and in, in education. And I'm sure we're going to get into this in a little bit in terms of where things are at right now and how advising's impacted and how we can help. And especially from, let's say, from the chancellor level, uh, from the system right. level. But can we talk about um, how you got involved and your path into academic advising?
2: Oh, sure. Um, it's it's- unique. It sort of happened unexpectedly. It was, um, I was at the time the assistant to the director of the university honors program. So I was assisting the faculty director and she did all of the advising and decided to go out on the faculty early retirement program. And um, in a transition mode, I had just fallen in love with those students. They were just amazing and so talented. And I just sort of asked, you know, can I, you know, try advising and working with them? And Uh, The director, the new director said, sure, you know, go for it. So I, you know, got the training from our senior advisor on campus through the the academic advising center, went through a very extensive training, took exams, had to prove myself. um, And so felt really ready to come in and and advise them. And what was unique about working with honor students from so many different majors, um, when we didn't have the use of technology, that's how long ago it was. I had to learn every major, all the core curriculum, you know, general education. And so I was really a walking catalog and a schedule of classes because I had to know it all. And um, then sort of do a handoff to faculty members in their, you know, upper, you know, in their junior and senior year, but still weaving in honors requirements because it was a four-year program. And I just had the just a great opportunity to... Um, you know, learn all the majors, learn all the requirements, make sure that, you know, we were getting in minors. And many of those students were headed to graduate or professional schools. Many of them got into law schools and taught, you know, medical programs. And I was so committed to learning all that I could about shaping their, you know, careers and or their their futures. And so I um, really found Nakata to be an excellent resource for working with honor students and high achieving students. And it was an amazing resource for me at the time. So I, I have to credit Nakata for helping me become the advisor, you know, that I think I am today. I, I think somewhat good. I don't get to see students now, but it has been a really great experience. So that's how it happened. And then from there um, was during the furloughs that I was had decided and had initially, this, you know, had an opportunity to present itself. And I don't think I would have, um, Taken on this opportunity had it not been for the furloughs. And I think at the time it caught us all off guard and it was a promotional opportunity for moving from an assistant director of advising to a director for a college-based advising center. Um, and it was ironic because all of the students coming into the honors program said, you can't leave until I graduate. And I told them, then I think that means I can't ever leave because we keep coming in, I keep getting a freshman class. And it was the hardest decision because I was with that program for a total of 14 years and um, made the move to the School of Art um, in the College of the Arts. And that's the largest publicly funded art program west of the Mississippi. So I had about 2,000 students. And really, it was a ratio of 1 to 2,000, which is unheard of. But I, I had an opportunity to um, hire a staff, get them trained, and build a real center. So that was a really great opportunity was able to stay in that role for three and a half years, almost three and a half years until I was sort of tapped to come in as the director of university academic advisement. And then again, getting the executive director title. So, um, and you know, just nothing was planned. It was really organic. Um, I guess the one deliberate thing was the move to the school of art in the college of the arts, but, um, just being able to bring all of that experience with me each time, you know, to have, something specialized programming and then having an opportunity to go to a college out in a department and then moving, moving to more of a university-wide perspective, working with undeclared student athletes, exploring students. So yeah, just had just great opportunity.
0: Yeah. And when you're talking about the furloughs, I think you're referring uh, to the like 2008, 2009 during, uh, during that time. I'm sure it was a difficult decision going from, you know, making that decision to not be in the honors program anymore to move on. But speaking of honors program, and we've talked about this before, um, so during that time um, in 2009, you were an employee of the month from Cal State Long Beach. And, And the honors students really were kind of talking about like how much you meant to them. And then you were kind of referring back to how much those students meant to you. And, you know, you were quoted saying, I love working with them, referring to the honors program students and helping them to meet their professional and academic goals And many go on to graduate school and get great jobs. And it means a lot to me to help make their dreams come true. I didn't plan for this job, but working here has turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me. But not just that. You've been, um, you know, because you've been out, you were at Cal State Long Beach, you know, for a few years. So there was also what I saw was, you know, there was an article uh, where they were talking about student homelessness and one of the students was talking about how you help them during their time. And, you know, and I think you had a re- really prominent quote in there where you said, you know, it, be- it can become this domino effect if we don't catch it and find a way to help. And I think that's kind of, you know, how I think of you is you're always wanting to help. How can we make things better, make this process easier, but how can we always make it better for the students? So, um, you know, and I think with your answer talking about your path to advising, it really shows in that. Oh,
2: thank you, Matt. Yeah, no, I was really, um, that particular student and just the under, understanding of basic needs in general was, um, it's really hard to, to imagine a student or anyone for that matter, um, not knowing where their next meal may be coming from or not having a place to stay or not having a consistent place to stay in their surf, you know, couch surfing or, um, and just trying to imagine that they're doing everything they possibly can to better themselves and, and, and their family situation and just breaks my heart. And so the fact that, you know, we, we have these students among us today and, and it's um, we just I think it's really important for us to do everything we possibly can to, to support them. And so, um, again, these students. Sort of become your family and you can sort of take them on and you, you 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 can't help but get close and can't help but you know carry their burden to some extent because they just um they just mean so much to you and you see how hard they're trying and the obstacles they're having to overcome so it's just um again very i feel very fortunate to be in a position to even try to give you know present resources to them and, and kind of guide them, you know guide them through
1: the process. So, Dewan, you have taken on I suppose a number of different roles throughout your career, increasing seniority, increasing levels of responsibility and uh, you obvious talent, obvious ability, but what what else is involved in, in that journey in, in taking um, those steps forward for, for maybe listeners who are hearing you speak and, and are thinking about like making a move or taking a step up? What would you, you say to them, I suppose, drawing on your own journey?
2: You know, for me, it was really... Um Because the Cal State system as a whole is in a very highly unionized environment, it was really having me, me being in a position to really understand collective bargaining issues, what you could and couldn't do, uh, some of the limitations. And I know that's not the case across the board at other institutions, but you really have to work within those confines. You have to figure out ways to navigate the system and do right, you know, just do the right thing. And I don't, you would think that's not a, for some people, that's a really difficult thing to do. But for me, it's sometimes it's really black and white. It's, it's right or wrong, you know, and uh, for in that regard, um, again, it wasn't just caring about students. I think when you are on, on a campus as, as long as I was in that regard, I care so much about the people I worked with. You really become a family and you really realize you that you can make this campus a small sort of an intimate place where you can grow and learn and and um, learn from a lot of folks. I was in a good position to sit on a lot of committees um, to be able to be exposed to understanding, um, you know, policies, you know, coded memos and understand how to, how to implement new um, policies coming down from the legislature and, and understanding how that's impacting students today. And so I just was, I took advantage of every opportunity that came my way. And I had a supportive and honors and very supportive faculty director who allowed me to um, to be involved. I don't call them extracurricular type things, but I chose to take them on because I was trying to make the honors program a better place for the students. So it wasn't for a personal growth. I didn't even see that coming per se. It was, how can I enhance this program? How can I continue to make it better? Um, and also connecting with colleagues throughout the system. It's really interesting that we are a 23-campus system, but I can pick up the phone, and I could at the time pick up the phone and call someone at another campus to say, hey, what are you doing in your honors program? Or, hey, what are you doing here? Because we're, I think, each other's best resource in, in that regard, and, and the fact that there's so many amazing, talented folks out there and having a chance to go to conferences and meet different people, then it you know gives you those ideas. I mean, there's only so much you can learn in the classroom setting. It's really then trying to take that and and provide the opportunities within the setting for students, other faculty and staff. And it's just, uh, I think faculty, because the honors program was a a small program where I had a chance to interact with faculty and help them design their courses, because it wasn't just a normal course and we stuck an honors tag on it, was really trying to develop a curriculum for students in a smaller class setting. We had probably 15 to 20 students in each honors class. So if you think about it, it was almost like AP and high in, at the university level. And students were um, so appreciative of having had that experience because when you have over 30,000 students on a campus, you were really able to make that program something special for them. You know, moving into um, additional roles and responsibilities, again, it was Something new. I'm not an artist, and it was uh, to me a compliment being in an art program. And students like, "Oh, what's your what's your major? What what did you major in?" I'm like, "Well, I'm not an artist." They're like, "You're not." I'm like, "No," (laughs) you know. But the fact that I understood them and I was able to um, relate to them, and and then going to their openings of their shows and supporting that, you know, that whole process and helping them to graduate sooner because they didn't want to. Um, that was a challenge, but um, really just soaking it all in and making sure that I could learn as much as I could with the pe- uh, from the people around me and utilizing the resources available. So even during bad budget times, there are ways to be able to find opportunities to present at conferences, to attend conferences, to network and reach out to folks. And I think that's what I really had to do was work across the campus especially with honors because all the students were in all seven colleges and um, really make connections. Um, I I run into people and we've known each other since the 90s and it's like, hey, you're still here. we're like, yeah, we're still here, you know? So um, making lifelong connections, that's just huge. Um, And if you're fortunate enough to be in a, a state university system where there are multiple campuses, It's really important that you reach out across those systems to connect with your colleagues. Um, I just think that's huge. I think we're very very fortunate within the California State University system, but there's so many across the country. And I really feel if I needed to, I could pick up the phone and call someone in the Florida system because I do know someone in the Florida system. Um, And it's it's just as large as this country is, we, we find a way to make it a small intimate community of academic professionals um, to come together and serve.
0: And I think sometimes when we kind of forget that there are other institutions other than our own and someone out there, I mean, with how many billions of people there are in the world, someone has either gone through the same thing we have or has a solution to a problem that we might have. And we have so many, ways that we can just go on the internet, look up a school, look up that department and maybe give them a call. Or maybe like you said, we met them at, the, at a conference, or they're part of our particular uh, institution system that we can reach out and, and get some advice. But you were talking about um, art. Um, column. did you know that Dewan was uh, recognized at, in an exhibit? Um um, celebrating people at Cal State Long Beach.
1: I did. I did not. But I want to hear more about this.
0: It was part of an exhibit celebrating um, African American women, and um, it was from the CSU, uh, Cal State Long Beach uh, University Student Union. Um, and so the, the exhibit was a. Uh, Nevertheless, she persis- uh, persisted, and so Duan was. Uh, recognized as one of the uh, inspirational women uh, and thanking them for their contributions um, at Cal State Long Beach.
2: Okay, you did your homework, Matt. I see you did <laughs> your yeah. <laughs> no, homework. That, that was truly an honor. Um, and, and just to be in the company of the other women, not myself as much as it was the fact that I was able to go around the room and see all of these amazing women and the things that they've done and achieved and accomplished and I've known so many of them and didn't even know that they had done so many things but um, so humbled so honored so unexpected but really um, an amazing just again just an amazing honor because I feel that uh, we were, it's so funny we work together so closely sometimes yet we don't know who we're working with always you know and the things that they've done in their own personal lives and their accomplishments and I think that goes back to the fact that you know, no one's trying to, um, build this empire. We're all there to serve. You know, it's not a personal thing. Like I'm doing this because I want to get here. Um, and you, you don't even realize that people are watching and that they're noticing, noticing your accomplishments over time, because that's not what you're not doing it to get noticed. And you're not doing those things for, um, personal self gain. I guess you would say it's more of you just do your job. You, you, you commit to students and um then it comes you know those things just kind of come your way and I've seen that not only in my own life but in the you know the lives of my colleagues as well you know we I think it's safe to say no one chooses to work in higher education to get rich you know Um, that is for sure (laughs) (laughs) and um And certainly wasn't what I thought I was going to be doing, but you were rewarded in so many ways. And I think if you are, if you've chosen this profession for the right reasons, you have um, every single day a sense of accomplishment and a sense of, you know, I've made a difference in someone's life, you know, even if they don't see it when you do move up the ranks and you're in the higher administration, because, you know, every decision that you're making, it's for students, you know, and, and, in, and in my case, and in I think the case of the CSU, we've made a commitment to close equity gaps and to help underserved and underrepresented students. And so I I think about them most often because we don't want them left behind. And now with COVID-19, you know, that gap can surely widen. So when I, when I think about things and I'm making decisions, um, it's really for students and, you um, And it's just a it's become a passion for me. Stay with us; we'll be right back.
1: You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today.
0: Well, I guess that kind of leads into uh, my next question, which is, you know... As an administrator, um, you deal with so much, you know, having to work with so many different levels uh, from those on the ground, uh, seeing the students to those making policy changes and making making yeah. the big decisions at an institution level, at a department level, you have things trickling yeah. down uh, from the state legislature for, to the, the CSU yeah. chancellor's office. Um, right. How do you navigate all of that, putting things into place or policies that need to be enacted, and then mm-hmm. trying to explain that to the students, to your advisors, to people that might question mm-hmm. it, um, you know, th- how do you make that <laughs> all work?
2: It's a challenge for sure. And, it, and a lot of it starts with senior leadership. And those are the folks, um, you know, definitely above me. But, you know, I think in the position, and the role that I've had, I've been able to have a seat at the table to kind of have them stop and think about, the larger picture. And that's sort of, I I don't know if it's a gift or a curse for me, I kind of think of it as a gift because I am a very big picture thinker and I'm actually always thinking ahead um, because it's not just about what's gonna happen at this moment, it's really the trickle down effect, similar to what you said and how it's going to impact students. Um, And you can't always see that per se in the sense That and and, and not only students, but I'm often thinking about how it's going to impact even the workload of the advisors, you know, because again, a goal for me is to make sure that they are working in an environment where they can um, be successful, thrive, serve the students. And a lot of things that happen, people don't really understand how that's going to impact the workload. And the fact that when they are um, working with students on the ground, they also have to deal with parents sometimes as well. So you, you've, you've got a lot of different constituency you know, groups that you have to kind of manage. And so when you're a senior administrator and you haven't been on the ground for such a long time or you haven't been in an advising role at all, yet you're charged with making decisions, you really do need to be open to hearing um, um how it might impact what this, and some things are good, you know, it's just how we implement them. Sometimes that may not be um, the best way, but making sure that you're bringing everyone to the table. My philosophy when I was managing my larger groups would be to bring everyone to the table, and this is what I'm thinking, and I'd say, am I missing something? You know, tell me if I have this correct, because I didn't, I wasn't always seeing students. So I didn't want to pretend like I had all the answers and Dwan was going to solve the problem. I was very collaborative with my own team and definitely across the the board. Sometimes you have to make a decision um, because that's just what you're charged to do. Or you need to bring something to the forefront and then let people weigh in on it. But you're never saying this is the final thing and this is the way we're doing it. And people don't always like that. You know, they always feel like, oh, you're making the decision and I don't get a say. And I said, no, that's not true. I had to have some sort of a foundation or we would be negotiating this for five weeks or two months. And we don't have that kind of time, you know, and um, it's not a done deal. It's a shell. And so you kind of bring things to the table and allowing people to have a say and you get pushback for even doing that sometimes. So you just have to be mindful. You have to have very thick skin. You have to be very mindful that when you are trying to bring things to the table, you have consulted with folks and then let's work together to try to find the common good. And you'd really have, if you think about on on the campus, you know, different colleges with different cultures and they go about doing things a little bit differently. And it's really hard to have seven different colleges such as at Long Beach, all on the same page, all at the same time. But the baseline should be the same for all of our students. They should walk away with, you know, certain criteria um, or certain knowledge Freshman, sophomores, junior, senior level. And so I think it's really in the best interest of students that we all kind of get on the same page. And I think senior administrators at the, at the, at the, um, in the senior level, you know, in, in academic affairs, student affairs, I think they, I think it's important that they know they have to hire good folks who are very collaborative in that regard to make sure that you can hear all voices. But then you also have to be mindful of the fact that. The end of the day, a decision has to be made, and we have to follow through on that piece of legislation. We have to, you know, follow through on that coded memo or that, you know, and, and get it done.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's very like I think for advisors where uh, we are sometimes representing the the students and the students' view, and we get a, a seat at the table with, with that voice. And I think for advisors to hear that there's somebody who is representing them and their views and at least giving it voice at the table is really important and very empowering. And you mentioned collaboration there a lot. You mentioned commitment to students. I'm going to take you back a little bit to what you said earlier around how impactful you found Nakata in relation to that. And maybe you could talk us through a little bit around how you initially uh, found out about NACADA and some of your interactions with NACADA?
2: Absolutely. Um, For me, it started like just trying to find professional organizations to support honor students when I was with that program. Later on, it became with student athletes when I started overseeing uh, the advising for them Um, and just getting a, a broader understanding of best practices, um, you know, advising models, all the things I really did, everything, those things I learned from Nakata. I mean, I just didn't know um, pretty much anything about advising. I'm just going to be completely honest with you. Stepping into the role that I did was just, I did it first and foremost because I cared so much about my students and I wanted to work with them and make sure that they were going to have the best possible experience ever because many of those students could have gone to their institutions. They decided to come to Long Beach for one reason or another, close to home, and um, then work, make the decision to maybe move on for um, graduate or professional school. And so it's like, oh my gosh, I need to know more about this and have a better understanding of what a successful honors program should look like. And even today, it is so much better than when I left it because they have a staff now. It was just me and student assistants. And, you know, it was a phenomenal, it is a phenomenal. Piece of work today it is a run a well old machine with great leadership um, but in my case it I found the kata out of either someone turned me on to it it was just the idea that I needed to have an understanding of how to serve these students and the resources available and um, the connections and um, becoming a member and getting the journals on a regular basis oh my gosh it's fascinating you know reading and just just insights and so i had my chance to go to my first conference um it was a national conference and it was later in my career but it was out um it was in las vegas i remember and it was so much fun and just kind of connecting with people and you know i'm the kind of person if i want to get to know you and if i want to know something i want to find out something if i can find your phone number i'm going to pick up the phone and i'm going to call you and i'm going to introduce myself and i'm going to invite you to my campus or invite you to speak or and I've gotten so used to that. I mean, I have picked up the phone and called a lot of people and said, "Hey, would you come to Cal State Long Beach?" And Charlie Met was one of the first first pers- you know, first presenters at our institute. Um, our institutes previously for advisors and counselors had been primarily uh, sharing out throughout the college and folks presenting. And the new AVP, then new AVP, decided you know she wanted to bring professional development to the campus. And why go back, because I know I met Charlie at, I don't know when I met Charlie, but it, I think it was at our collaborative, or so I invited him to the collaborative. I'm not sure how we got him there, but I, I fell in love with that man. He's amazing. He's just awesome. And I could just listen to him speak forever. And then I actually ended up bringing him to the campus and um, he did a phenomenal job and just amazing. And so I really feel like if I need anything, I can pick up the phone and ask him or I could send him an email and he gets back to me very quickly. Um, And then just through him and just those connections with Nakata, just finding different folks and meeting different people um, at conferences and or smaller settings. And then I've met folks just across the country. I had um, from Georgia State, Tim Rennick come out and I just picked up the phone and called him and like, do you realize that you're just picking up the phone and calling this net? I'm like, well, how else am I going to find out if he'll come to the campus, you know? So um just fortunate. I had an email exchange this morning with Dr. Jennifer Bloom from Florida Atlantic University. So I just think it's important. I know it's a cost, and not all universities can pay that cost for your membership. But I took that as a personal professional development opportunity for myself. Did I have to save up for it maybe? Yes, back in the day. Now it's not that, you know, I can pay that that fee, but it's worth so much more to me to be able to make those connections for my professional development and for me to be able to continue to serve students to the best of my ability.
0: And you mentioned Charlie Nutt. Who, who is he?
2: Charlie Nutt is the, you know who he is. <laughs>
0: no, and and I'm, sure, I'm sure we'll get to the California Collaborative in a little bit, but I wanted to uh, touch upon like um, your new role. So okay. now you're not working at Cal State Long Beach. You're working for the, the California State University Chancellor's Office yes. or Office of the yeah. Chancellor, whichever one you go with. Exactly. So w- what does your new role entail with, with advising?
2: Well, it's really to support the advising community. Um, as you know, there's a graduation initiative 2025. Um, all the campuses were given goals to um, meet a four-year and six-year uh, graduation rate to increase um, really the workforce for the state of California. I mean, that is really the primary goal, you know, graduation initiative and really closing equity gaps and getting more of our underserved students into the university and to graduate and go on to do well. And one of the pillars for the, uh, GI 2025, um, graduation initiative 2025 was advising. And, um, I think I knew that at one point, but I hadn't paid that much attention to it because we were so busy, you know, kind of still boots on the ground trying to, you know, alleviate barriers on our campus. And I think that's what we all were just trying to make sure. Why are we having students jump through all these hoops to get something done when we can really figure out a way to streamline things? And so I was approached a year ago to come over as a special consultant, um, to help, you know, kind of, um, Get advising together, provide professional development for faculty advisors, staff advisors um, and sort of giving them the tools that they may need in order to support efforts, thinking about assessment, you know where can we could the colleges or the, the universities make um, improvements. So this had been somewhat a, a year and a work in the works with trying to you know negotiate going back and forth. And I just decided I was at a point in my career that's like, hey, let's just go on and take this opportunity. So I decided to make the move over. So it's an interim role now. And I'm actually working across divisions. Um, I'm with the Division of Student Affairs. Um, student affairs it's an Academic Affairs and Student Affairs, but I specifically work in the Division of Student Affairs and Enrollment Management. But I'm working with Faculty Affairs and I'm working with um, different folks in other areas. And it's exactly what I was hoping to do is to be able to collaborate across the division within chancellor's office. And I don't think people realize, oh, yeah, I worked on this. Oh, yeah, I did this. Oh, yeah, I did that. And so all of this experience has really made a difference for me to help inform, uh, I think, people at the chancellor's office because some of them have been you know, been there for so long, they haven't been on the campus for such a long time. So I'm really able to bring a perspective. And then also just having boots on the ground, just having been an academic advisor, and, you know, um, a middle manager, so to speak, and kind of moving up. And just the fact that, oh, yeah, I have accumulated all of this knowledge. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to help and, and provide any insight. So right now, it's just more trying to you know, keep the advising directors for all the 23 campuses in the loop of what's going on, helping them with. We just had a webinar yesterday with our associate vice chancellor for student affairs and um, enrollment management speak and talk about our. Uh, Is it they at GI 2025? Are the goals going to be rearranged? You know, be um, reevaluated? Are we still on track? And of course, we're still on track. Yes, things will be modified, but we can't lose sight of the mission and the goal of educating our students and. Definitely preparing them for the new workforce, whatever this is going to look like after COVID 19. You know, this will pass. This will be behind us, but we still need to be ready to move forward. So I'm very confident and they're very committed. I think there's a sense of commitment to our students, to our staff, to our faculty. Um, we just don't know what this is going to look like yet. And no one does, basically. Yeah, the Nakata, you know, the folks, the, the resources, I think it's just important to take as, to take advantage of as many possible opportunities, you know, because um, you just never know where that's going to lead. And I think you just need to be open. And I think having served on uh, a campus for as long as I had, um, I was kind of like ready to see, OK, what's next for me?
1: Dewan, one of the things you mentioned there that has been a topic that I suppose Matt and I have talked to Uh, other advisors on the podcast about, and it seems to come up time and time again, is removing barriers for students. And maybe you could talk us through what you see as some of those barriers for for students and how in a a COVID-19 world, we're going to go about removing them.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that, Colin, because what I see is because of COVID-19, these barriers have really surfaced more so than we thought we were working on them and thinking we were doing something to remove them. And then we find, then we come into this environment like, oh my gosh, we still have so much work to do. And I think it's just the things, I mean, literally there is, um, there's so much inequity going on and just in the, in the sense of what our students have and have access to, even in their own homes, You know, the fact that, you know, the internet may not be as strong, they may have it, but it may not, when you have five people in the home on it, it may not be strong enough for me to to watch my professor. I may not have a computer. I'm trying to do work on my phone. You know, I still have issues because I, my siblings can't eat because the school provided lunch for them and, and now I have to take them and we have to go pick up the lunch and so I can't go to my class. I mean, you name it. You think it, we've heard it. I mean, it's just like, oh my gosh. And I think if anything, you really have to be sensitive to what their needs are and what's going on. And we seem to think that once they step on our campus, when we were on campus, that there was an equal playing field and absolutely not. And I know we knew that from maybe an economic standpoint or perhaps, you know, the fact that, you know, we had so many Pell eligible students and they were low income. But I don't think we understood what that divide was until COVID 19. And now that we're here, I mean, I'm so sorry that this happened, but it has really been eye opening, I think, for a lot of university administrators to see that we now have an obligation to make sure that our students are set up for success. Um, I've heard of schools passing out laptops, Chromebooks, putting money on cards, giving them hot spots. I know at Long Beach, I think it was at Long Beach, they allowed students to drive and sit in their cars and use the Wi-Fi on campus underneath the solar panels and be in a comfortable, safe distance from one another, but be able to still get some work done. That's if they have a car and can get to campus. You know, you think about those who take public transportation. So um, you just see this uphill battle. These students were climbing, but they were still so wanting an education and they knew that this was an opportunity for them to better their, their lives the lives of their families they were the first in the family to go to college so they were um you just can't help it your heart just goes out to them and say okay what can we do you know um how can we assist we know that the the, the tuition in the csu system is relatively low for four- year you know education and if you are eligible for certain financial aid packets it's going to be very small, but it is also very expensive to live in the state, at least parts of the state of California. You know, rents are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Students still have other things to deal with. So I think if nothing else, this pandemic has brought that to light and has allowed us to really think about, you know, does a basic, my associate my, vice um, my chancellor said this yesterday, will a basic need be now to hand a computer to every student? Just to make sure they have one, you know, and then again, being able to ask the city to provide good Wi-Fi spots, safe and secure, so that they may have a space to do their work. So it's again uh, making sure that we can um, meet them where they are. It's sort of, you know, we always say, um, you know, we have to be really a student-ready system, not an institution, but a system. And those barriers have been everything from having them have to come in and fill out a form or have to come in and take care of things that we're now saying, oh, we can put that online. We could have done that two years ago. We just didn't. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so we now are realizing that we made it a little bit more difficult for our students to navigate the university system. And now we are having to, by, by choice, you know, but because we have no choice to make it easier for them. That's just
0: one little example, but oh no, it, it's it's great examples that you gave because I think a lot of um, listeners are going to be like, that's what we're going through too, you know, and and you know, a lot of our students, you know, students I, I've talked to, kind of same thing. I've had some that have to had driven to our campus in certain parking lots to be able to utilize the Wi-Fi, but yeah, it's like, do they have a car? They got to pay for gas to get to the campus for that. I've had some that you know have multiple family members, and they have to get on their phone or laptop and go into their car in the driveway right. because that's where there's no noise and no distractions uh, for for them to to be able to interact and have their appointments. One question I have, um, I'm not sure how much you can talk about this, but uh, yeah. recently the there was the uh, on the news, and there was the chancellor's office uh, statement regarding uh, the fall term. Um, Can you talk more about the uh, chancellor's office's decision regarding uh, the fall term? And then I have a follow-up question after that.
2: Sure. Um, It's not, I can't say a whole lot about it other than what I've learned just from the the document and uh, or the statement coming from our our chancellor. But basically from what I understand, there was a lot of care and thoughtfulness and um, research that went into the decision. And, uh, and I think consulting with, professionals and leaders in the healthcare industry. Uh, And I think they made a data-driven, informed decision, you know, a data-informed decision, basically. And I really was so impressed with the thought that they took about making that. Um, Obviously, the campuses are all still open. We're not a closed system right now. Um, People are on the campus and work is still going forth. And I think they're trying now to determine if um, how campuses can um, continue to have labs, you know, moving forward with art students having to have access to certain equipment. What is that going to look like? And I think each campus is going to have to be very thoughtful in their planning uh, to decide how you would repopulate a campus. But I they, they, I know no more than what you read and what you've heard, but I do know that um, a lot of care and a lot of thought went into making that decision. It was not an easy decision to make. I, I think with this coming upon the, um, the three day weekend and people wanting to get out and it's going to be beautiful. There's still a lot of fear and concern out there. And I think just because where we are now and the timing that the decision, you know, when the decision was made, I still feel like we don't know what fall is going to look like. You know, we, many of us run out and get our flu shots in the fall because we don't want to, you know, be concerned about what's going to happen with the flu, because each year, oh, this best strain is going to be bad. Go get your flu shot. But we don't have anything for COVID-19. And, and I don't know how quickly you want to get back to campus, but I'm not that eager to go back to a heavily populated. <laughs> um, so I really think the decision was a, gr- a good one to make. Um, but again, a lot of care and a lot of thought went into it and i know you hear institutions across the country making different decisions and trying to do things differently and think they can control this well how do you control a mutating <laughs> virus that we don't know what's going to look like next week um and i applaud them i'm not critical of that i i i i think they're thinking as people want to be back together and people want to be back on campus and we all want to go back to our normal lives but i think that's over i don't think that's going to ever, it's never going to look like it it did previously. Um, and I think we need to be thinking about how are we going to move forward and what this can look like. And I think it's going to really be important to teach our students how to navigate online learning and do it really well. And I think that's the most important thing, because if we don't set them up for success, they're not going to have success in this environment. Uh, what we did to pivot in the spring is going to look Completely different what we need to, from what we need to
0: do in the fall semester. So, Colin was asking about um, barriers and you know how institutions are responding to that. Um, recently, I'm having more and more students and appointments that are kind of very nervous about fall being online. You know, they feel that uh, they're barely making it through because right now we're on the quarter system, but we're remo- moving the semester. So, I mean, there's that as a, a transition for students as well as for staff and faculty. But, you know, we still have our spring core that's continuing to go on. By the time this episode gets aired, spring term might already be done by then. But um, they feel like they're barely making it through trying yeah. to do what they can to learn the information, understand it. But, you know, they, they miss being on campus. Uh, they feel like their best learning is on campus. Um, and even having Zoom where they log in on the day and time of class, is it's not exactly the same and so some some students now that i'm meeting with are asking well can i take fall off and then they're basically saying they feel like they need to take fall off and for back on campus for the spring semester then they'll come back for spring um what advice can you give like for advisors to talk to students about this about students that may want to take a term off and come back um you know feeling nervous about online continuing um in the fall term potentially
2: right um you know, that's a hard one because it's almost a case-by-case situation. Mm-hmm. I think um, even if we come back on campus in the spring, I don't know how fully the campus will be delayed. You know what I mean? I just don't know what that's going to look like for students. And personally, this is just my personal opinion. I, I don't know what other people are thinking, but I think it's really important for us um, to help them. Understand how to learn online. And I don't know that that would work for everyone, but we haven't, we didn't get to do that. We just had to, like I said, we had to pivot so quickly. We didn't have an opportunity to say, you know, these are some of the best practices, these are some of the ways. Because if you really think about it now, we may be preparing them to enter a workforce where you're working from home. You know what I mean? It's not just about their schooling, it's about setting them up as to how to engage with people in an online format and how to, and Mm -hmm. I'm not saying this is going to be easy. I please don't think that. But if you think about some of the major companies that I've heard of recently, like Google and some of the other ones are saying, Oh yeah, no, you can work from home anywhere in the country you want. We don't have to have you in an, in an environment where we think you're productive because you sit at your desk eight hours a day, you know? And so I think, this is the beginning of preparing them for the future. So with that said, <clears throat> excuse me, I would not necessarily encourage them to walk away from the fall semester. I would even say, if you need to reduce your workload, I mean, your your schedule to some extent, I think to disengage completely might not be the best thing because they're trying to anticipate and predict what would happen in the spring. And we don't know that yet. We could have a bad fall, and this could rise again and change and spring's not a guarantee. I'd like to think we will be, because I think we miss each other. I think as colleagues, we are very like we need to be together. That's how we operate. And we don't want to take that away from students. But I I would venture to say if they could manage it, you know, maybe we don't go full time, maybe we go part-time. You know, if your circumstances are such that you need to be off a semester, by all means take an educational leave. But what are you going to do in that time? It's not like there's a job out there that you're going to probably be able to run to get. I think staying connected to the campus is going to be important. And, and, and if it's no more, and it, what I found that, and I've heard recently that students are taking classes that are not as difficult as if they were going to be on the campus, where they would need to be engaged with others in the classroom, but something they feel like not an easy A, I'm not trying to say there's some super easy classes out there, but something they feel like they could actually manage. And then again, you need to give the faculty a chance. Many of them didn't have a chance and that's what they're going to spend their summer doing for most part, getting ready for fall and really learning how to put their material in a, in a, in a way on, on campus and an online platform that's still as engaging as if they were in the classroom. Some of them were really resistant. Faculty didn't want to do it. It was very difficult for them as well. Um, But now I think there's a commitment to making sure that um, instruction is at the best level it can be. So I know it's a hard one, I would say, as a case-by-case, but I don't want to discourage students to not do anything for an entire semester, especially if there's, you know, there are no jobs. What are they going to do? You know, so it's just a hard one. But I would be very careful about saying, yeah, just take the whole semester off.
1: I mean, it's interesting, I suppose, because my the institution I work at has made the decision to go online online. definitely for postgrads for a first semester, which in an Irish context, not a lot of the other institutions have decided what they're going to do as yet. But the reality is we're probably looking at social distancing, at least until the end of the calendar year, if not longer. So what my institution is doing is trying to ensure that our first year undergrads get some sort of campus experience because they don't have the networks, they don't have the communities, they don't have anything to, to fall back on. Um, and. I, I think that a lot of what you're saying are around the challenges and, and around helping students towards online learning. And I know Matt and I have talked to faculty and, and talked to advisors about the, the change this semester and, and how quickly they had to flip it. And, and we went from, you know, classes where the pedagogy was set up for in-person to it having to be taught online. So hopefully over the summer, faculty can, can get more time. Um, and now we've talked about that and we understand there are going to be massive challenges for students um, and, and for faculty. But for advisors as well, I suppose there, there will be challenges. And, and are there is there any advice uh, you, could, you could offer to advisors who are you know, facing into uh, a, a, a massive degree of uncertainty, I suppose, and how they, they manage their work?
2: Well, first, put your face mask on. You know, you can't do that until you can help someone. <laughs> you can't help anyone until you can do that for yourself. Take a deep breath and don't be so hard on yourself. You know, um, that's the really first thing. It's I've been um, Zooming with friends and we've been talking about and been in, invited to spaces of, and talking about self-care because I don't know. And, and I, I spoke to a professor yesterday who was basically saying that all of the zoom you know, constantly day in and day out. We're so tired by the end of the day. It's just this focus and attention where you're looking at all these people on the screen and you're trying to engage their body language and, oh, what did that facial expression mean? And, oh, what are they thinking right now? And so it really becomes this, we just are, um, overloaded, stimul you know, we're just overstimulated in so many ways that by the end of the day or definitely by the end of the week, um your jaw hurts and you're just tired. you just like, you need some time. And so um, I really personally feel that we need to consider um, definitely taking care of ourselves and having managers or leads in the offices really rethink about how they're structuring the time for the advisors. Um, You might want to give someone a shift from 10 to six so that they don't have to jump up at eight o'clock in the morning and be at their desk or have an 8.30 meeting. You know, you might want to stagger it that way. And if you've built great relationships with your staff, I think, you know, you can trust them to get the work done. You know what I mean? And again, we're entering it into an environment where it's no longer going to be necessarily an eight to five. You know, some of our students went home and left the country that we were still trying to serve in there and, you know, um, Germany and, and other places, especially with student athletes coming. We have a huge international population for student athletes, as well as our international students in general. And um, we have to be mindful of the fact that it needs to shift and it needs to look different. And, and you have to hope that, <clears throat> excuse me, if, if you're in a union, your representation is looking at those types of things and making sure that your home environment is set up in such a way that, are you comfortable at the desk that you, can you continue to work at your dining room table? Because that's not going to work long term, you know, for some folks. You know, do you have things that you need? Did you allow your staff to go home, you know, go into the office and take um, equipment home, your second monitor, that chair that you sat in that was comfortable all day? You know, you really have to be mindful of the fact that you need to set up an environment for the staff and the advisors to be comfortable because this is going to be long-term. We know that in the CSU system for sure. And other, other institutions are grappling with that as well. I think it's just establishing a level of trust as, as a lead or an advisor, um, you need to check in with your folks, even your support staff, you know, regularly, um, doesn't need to be daily, but trying to get some check-ins just to make sure, and it's not checking up on them, it's just to make sure they're okay, you know what I mean, and you see if they're for reporting out what they're doing in the course of the day, like, hey, this is too much, we need to scale you back a little bit, and what can we hand off to someone else? So. Um, I really think it's really important for leadership to be very mindful of the, 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 the well-being of their staff um, members to make sure that they can be as productive as possible and they're not getting overwhelmed. You can't sit at your little makeshift desk all day. Sometimes you have to get up and you get away and your computer looks idle, or it may look like you're, you've left, but it's like, no, I just can't, I need to walk away. I need to walk around the block. I need to take a break. I need to get some fresh air. And I, th- I think we need some some kind of guidance for us, you know, to make sure we're taking good care of ourselves.
0: Definitely good advice. And it's great reminders too, you know, because we don't, you know, we a lot of times, I mean, we're booked solid with appointments and we have to make sure we're taking those breaks. We're doing that walk around the block, you know, because the days start mixing together and the weekend and weekday, there's doesn't seem to be a difference anymore. Um, but you know, you were talking about advisors, you're talking about uh, leadership and uh, column, I think you had a question you wanted to ask Dewan. you know, because Dewan has so such an uh, so much experience um, with different roles and, and being an administrator and, and moving up. I think and this might be more difficult time now uh, with the situation that we're in, but you wanted to ask her about advisors who were interested in leadership, right?
1: Yeah, and and I think you, we've touched on aspects of it, but I think for, there, there, there are, there are, if you're in an advising role there will always be advisors who do want to move into those senior sure. more senior positions and i think you have shown that you know you you moved into advising you you were interested you're interested in your students you moved into advising then as you said you took the step to to middle management and now you you've taken a, a step further again so uh, how, what are the things are there practical things that advisors could look to do to take those next steps in their career to to move up the ladder?
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I think everyone's journey is going to be a little bit different. But um, for me, I think it was important for me to move. Um, It's very, it was easy. I literally, to this day, feel like I could still be in the honors program, (laughs) because those kids were just amazing. And I was having such a great time with them. But I knew professionally, once I knew that this was what I really wanted to do, I knew that I can only go so far. I had tried to get what we would call a reclassification within that that program, and because I really wasn't at the time supervising anyone. <clears throat> it wasn't going to happen. And I think people get really comfortable in higher ed, and, and they want to stay where they are, and they, they feel like, wow, this is it. But in order to gain that experience and to be able to diversify your resume, you're going to have to take on more roles. Um, some of them may be in a volunteer setting. You know what I mean? It depends. But um, and sometimes it may be a lateral move in order to gain uh, experience in a different role and capacity. Ideally, you're moving up and ideally you're making, you know, obviously, would hopefully you get to increase your salary and so forth. But it really comes down to a lot of experience. And being able to say, yes, I did work with high achieving students in the honors program. Um, Yes, I did go and work with students in a specific college. And I had a really great understanding of curriculum and had to navigate that whole system. And then, yes, I did go work with undeclared first gen students who are in developmental and are in need of math and English support. And um, I think I've touched just about all of them and student athletes. I mean, and I didn't really plan that. It just sort of happened that way. Um, But I think you have to not be afraid to do so. Your education is only going to take you so far because if you're, if you have all the degrees, but you don't have the experience that aligns, you know, to align with that degree, it doesn't really matter. You really need to be boots on the ground, having those interactions and engagements with those different student populations. And then with the folks who are, you know, trying to get on certain committees. Now, obviously, you can't, depending on the structure and how your university, your university is structured in a way, you may work for someone that gets um, to go to all of these meetings, but your insight and your being able to inform and consult with that person on a regular basis is huge, because then you're informing them, you know, to be ready to have those conversations, because I need you to address this, this, and this, and this, because it's a problem now go do it. You know what I mean? And you're, and you're really setting your boss up for success if you think about it. So you again, you can't approach these roles as I'm going to do what's best for me, and I'm trying to build my own little personal empire, and I want to be this, and I want to be that. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. I want people to be ambitious, and I want them to pursue their goals. But sometimes that becomes very evident to folks who are watching you do that, because your first, your primary reason for even being on that campus is because of students, first and foremost. Um, sorry, that's, they're the primary, you know, they're our, they're our um, customer in a way. And I don't want to think about it in a business sense, but it, it's true. It's who they, you know, we serve them. Without them, we don't exist. Um, and again, when you think about all these institutions now wanting to come after our students who actually do online really well, it's very important for us to hang on to them and to make sure that we're providing the best service possible. So that means we're going to have to go out and learn what we don't know and, and, and try new things and, and, and think differently. And if you're not open to that, you're not going to survive this. You're not going to survive COVID-19. It's not going to happen.
0: Duan, do you know something called uh, Beach TV?
2: Yes, I do. Okay.
0: So, so last thing <laughs> I'll, I'll mention about... <laughs> Uh, about Dewan. Uh, well, actually, no. I actually that's a lie because there's. There'll be more in a little bit. But um, this was uh, an interview that you did with Beach TV for Cal State Long Beach, and you talked about it was called No Barriers, High Touch and High Tech Advising. And I think a lot of what you talked about in that interview, because this was last year, so pre COVID nineteen and all of this. But I think a lot of what you touched about in terms terms of doing everything for the student having you know making sure that you're building up our students for success you did in that interview so i would suggest (laughs) listeners go on youtube uh google (laughs) dewan jackson or beach tv no barriers high touch and high tech advising and it's a great interview um that you did also with uh Daniel Gleason, so my buddy, also from Cal State Long Beach. But uh, speaking about, you know, doing everything for the students, uh, one of the things you were a part of and still are is the California Collaborative Advising and Counseling Conference, which was meant to, as a tri-system approach, yes. to bring the California um, state universities, the University of California institutions, and the community California community colleges together to make things kind of streamlined and improve processes for students as they navigate the three systems. Can you talk about um, how that all started?
2: Sure. Um, No, we were really excited about this particular opportunity and the things that we could do for our students, specifically our transfer students. Um, Dr. Bridget Driscoll, um, who was um, at Dominguez Hills at the time, we were approached by um, a colleague from the campus, um, from the chancellor's office. There was money from um, e-advising and we had we were probably at the beginning stages of acquiring EAB, the Educational Advisory Board Student Success Collaborative. Um, at the time, it wasn't called Navigate, but um, we were really trying to bring the systems together and even just see if there were tools and technologies, uh, technology available to us that we could kind of make this a seamless transition. We realized that we partner with our community colleges so well, but we're usually usually talking apples and oranges. You know, we're, we're different languages, so to speak. And um, some of our students are, you know, spending more time at the community college than they wanted to for various reasons—personal, professional, so forth—and um, then coming to us and still not feeling as prepared to, to enter into upper division coursework. At the, at the, the Cal State system. And so it was really kind of like, let's talk to the community colleges. Let's bring them together. And we, knowing that we already had that strong relationship, we're just like, how can we enhance that and make it better? And then our UC partners, um, kind of in the same situation where students were sort of not feeling necessarily ready to enter into the UC system and was one of the first things, I think the, the primary goal was for us to come together and say, hey, we're here to support one another. If a student wants to go to UC, then you go to that UC. We're not going to stop you. We're not going to try to get you to come to CSU. And really this kind of tri-campus or tri-system coming together. And I think the first one was just a huge success. It was done very quickly and trying to bring all the connections together. And Dr. Driscoll had so many different, um, you know, people that she knew across both systems and really people like, yeah, let's do this. Let's try. So really it was a, I think a, a labor of love. It was really hard, but people just jumped in and supported this whole effort and volunteered and, and we formed a steering committee and kind of, you know, just move forward. And I thought it was a really big success. And we, I think the first one was held in the fall semester. And we thought we would move it to spring because we didn't want to compete with the Nakata National Conference. And, you know, we really didn't want to discourage that. But um, our first keynote speaker was Charlie Nutt, and he came out and he did a phenomenal job and just really inspired everyone, you know, really questioned were you in this business for the right reason? And that's kind of, that's always sort of stuck in my mind because you still feel people who say, oh, I, I you know, I'll do this because I don't want to have anything else to do, you know. No, you really need to be committed to this. And you, you're going to have some amazing advisors out there who probably should never be administrators, you know, even if they want to be, because their talent just is with advising. And you're going to have some amazing people that you can see right away. They're leaders. They think differently. They want different, you know, They and it's not like it's just a personal thing, but they just really are committed to kind of leading and taking charge. And the thing about professional development, we couldn't always send people to Nakata. And it wasn't the cost of the conference as much as the travel, everything that would involve. You know, it it would involve to get someone to a location. And it's not that they're overly expensive, I think they're reasonable, but you think about trying to send a a staff a 10. You know, you just don't have that kind of money in your department to to support that. The collaborative, I think the first one was no charge, basically. Mm -hmm. It was free. And that's unheard of, you know, to have a conference of that magnitude free. Um, and thankfully, people, many people were local and um, could come, you know, only a few people had to stay at the hotel coming from different areas. But so obviously, we started having to charge, but not even a lot. We, we were able to keep the cost down. So yeah, just really proud of that whole effort, the the fact that we were able to do it so quickly. And then just having that off that chance to kind of rethink it and reimagine it in in different ways and more people like, yeah, I want to get involved. I want to get involved. We had a scholarship the first year, I think the first year, maybe it was the second year. The second year. Yeah. And that's where I met you, man. (laughs) Like that's the um, the. um. Scholarship recipients, and I was on the scholarship committee with myself, with Jazzy Murphy um, from, uh, at the time, Sac State. She's now at a community college. Another person from a community college, I think it was Cerritos, I can't think of her name at the time. But the things that we were able to do just online, I mean, you put a conference together like this, and you're not in a room together. You're just like, you make it work, and we did it. And then we came together like, whoa, look at this place. This is great. So, um it was a huge accomplishment. And um, I always kept my provost in the loop as to what we were doing on behalf of the chancellor's office. And there was just a huge commitment for the CO um, to um, keep this going, to keep that collaborative, collaborative spirit going between the, the three systems. And just really honored to have been a part of the inaugural conference. And then I just wanted to continue just to have opportunities for staff to be able to um, continue and learn from one another. Again, it's us being able to get into a room and you know we had great proposals submitted and we're now trying to, since we had to cancel the conference for this year, I'm going to be meeting with the person who um, oversaw the collection of the proposals to see if we can turn those into workshops throughout the fall semester and have two or three presenters monthly so that we can keep that spirit going because who knows when we'll be able to get back together.
0: Yeah, there's gonna be so so many changes but you know being as proactive as possible. Uh, but column let, let me tell you a couple stories about Dwan. The first one is about uh, at UC Davis uh, when I first met Duane. Um so she so, so sweet because I was one of the scholarship recipients and so we got to all meet up. Uh, prior to the conference starting um, and just a side note, uh, so Charlie Nutt was the keynote uh, for the first two which is amazing that you know he, he kept coming back and he was supposed to be the keynote for our last one but of course the conference got cancelled because right. of COVID-19 uh, so that was unfortunate so um, the first like interaction was meeting Duane, um as one of the scholarship recipients. But later on that conference, I was um, assessor moderator for uh, one of the presentations that Cal State Long Beach was doing. And it was um, her staff. And I remember I was passing out the uh, session evaluations. And uh, Dewan was sitting in the audience to you know, watch her staff. And I went to hand her session evaluation. She said, Oh, no, no, uh, that's okay. And I was just kind of confused. And she's like, that, that's my staff up there. Uh, she's like, if I fill it out, I would give them all fives and excellent. And so I, I, I will skew. I will skew the data. So I, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll pass.
2: <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> that's so funny i can't i believe i said
0: that but i can't believe i said that oh no i re- so the 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 crazy thing is i remember that because like it had an impact on me because like it was so genuine and that's how i know i was like wow you know Duane is so real and you know and and so honest too you know i'm just thinking of people that probably would have done it and just like filled it out and be like oh this is the best presentation ever <laughs> But the, the other story uh, is the following conference, Cal State San Bernardino was co-hosting uh, the third annual conference. And Duan and I uh, were working um, you know, to make sure, of course, as a steering committee, make sure the conference went well. And Duan was in charge of a few of the panels, including our e-advising panel. And I just remember, you know, like six months, you know, it was kind of like every so often we would have our, our meetings and we'd have our phone calls. But that's when I realized like how busy you were because she would literally be running from like meeting to meeting and then in between call me or text me you know, to have a meeting as she's like walking to her next meeting. But she would like, you know, I know multitasking technically is not multitasking, but like if, if there was multitasking, like that would be Duane and, and she handled everything with, with such ease. So oh,
2: thank you. Yeah, I, I, if I lost my phone, oh my gosh, that would not be a good thing. And our campus is so large that it's not like I can just stop and take a few steps to the next meeting. I'm literally running from one end of the campus to the other. Um, and I miss that today. I'm sitting in my house, but I definitely miss moving around. And, and I think once I get to the chancellor's office, that's absolutely what I'm going to miss too, kind of shifting around campus to campus and being outside. I mean, Long Beach is such a beautiful campus. But yeah, I, I tried to always, I was so apologetic. I'm so sorry, I've got to go, or I'm going to switch to my phone and I'm going to walk to this meeting while I'm going to, you know, I'm a listening, but I've got to walk and move. So, and I felt like this was a volunteer, so even though I was working on behalf of the campus and the university system as a whole, I didn't want this to impact my day to day job. You know, I didn't want people to oh, I'm working on a collaborative, so I don't have time to deal with my work. Um, they were equally as important, but um, I really felt like wanted to keep that separation and and just, you know, keep that going so yeah and matt's wonderful yeah. he's just been i've adopted him he's now my son so
0: <laughs> yeah so here's another thing column is uh, we were i think it probably like our second or third meeting um into the third annual conference that we were you know chatting with and making and planning the conference and it was kind of like this like connection and like we just started yeah. was like you know what we're family and so like
3: yes. you're my mom
0: i'm your son and <laughs> And it it,
2: yes. it was great. <laughs> yeah, I just and 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 I I seriously, I mean, I'm so excited. I'm so proud of him. Matt is amazing and I know that whatever you want in higher ed, you can absolutely achieve it. It's it's again being okay with where you are for the moment. You know what I mean? Colin, I really want you to um, if you aspire to get to a higher level, both of you. I think that's great, but the further up you go, the more you are removed from students. And I, I, I think I shared this with you at, at a, at a, earlier. I said um, you have to know that everything that you're doing and everything that you're working on is still for students, and decisions that you're making it's for all students. Sometimes that's a little bit more difficult because sometimes when you're in that leadership role, you're usually dealing with the challenging students or those who are struggling as opposed to just being able to have really good conversations and talk about grad school and talk about internships. But that all comes into play. It just it's just the idea that as you go up into higher administration or leadership type positions, you don't get that face to face interaction. But if you can keep in the forefront that every decision that you're making um, is for the you know it's for the student and your staff, in many ways, then you become responsible for a whole lot of people that you want to make sure they're doing okay, then then you'll be great. And that, I sense that from both of you. You're just people, you know, you care about people, so you'll be fantastic.
1: This has been really fascinating, and I think listeners will have taken a lot from it. I I think what comes to mind for me when, you know, in terms uh, of of you and your approach is commitment, commitment to students, commitment to your staff, and commitment to continuously improve. That comes across so strongly. And I think it really, truly is inspirational. And I'm just really happy that you were able to give us the time that you have we really appreciate it because as matt said you are phenomenally busy but i I think listeners will be able to take an awful lot from this interview so thank you duane it has been absolutely fantastic
2: thank you both for this opportunity you you've allowed me to do have some you know some reflection and kind of making sure that you know even though i'm not working directly with students right now i can still keep them on the forefront and make sure that they're okay, especially during this time. And just commend you both for the work that you do and um, just keep doing the great work that you're doing for our students. So really excited to have had an opportunity to meet you, Colin. And of course, Matt, we'll talk all the time, but thank you both so much.
0: Wonderful interview there with DeWan. And like she said in the interview, she considers me her son and I consider her my mom. So thanks, mom, for being part of this episode. And a lot of great information she gave, including her time in the honors program and serving students. And she really cares so deeply for her students and advising. And I'm glad she was able to share her path throughout her time at CSU Long Beach and now at the CSU Chancellor's Office. So Dewan, best on your new position. And I know you're going to continue to do great.
1: I I'm delighted we were able to talk to somebody so accomplished and I thought what was fascinating was to hear about her personal journey but also the practical advice that she had to offer and I think that was really insightful. I think there's a lot of takeaways for people from that interview and I think, in terms of people who are accomplished, our next interview is with an individual who is incredibly accomplished in his own right.
0: Yep. So that is Casey Self, which many, many of us know and love, not just at what he's done at ASU, but also within Nakata and the impact he continues to make. So let's jump right into the interview. <music> So it's an honor to introduce our next guest, and that's Casey Self. Casey is a Senior Director of Academic Advising for the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at Arizona State University. Casey's current responsibilities at ASU include supervision and oversight for the academic advising hubs for all first-year liberal arts and sciences students, as well as general oversight for the academic advising program for all advising departments in the college. Casey served as an academic advisor at ASU from 1994 to 1996 prior to becoming primarily involved in academic advising administration and supervision. Previous to academic advising, Casey has experience in residence hall administration and student leadership development at the University of Northern Colorado, Western Illinois University, and Arizona State University. Casey became a Nakata member in 1996 and has been involved in Nakata diversity committee efforts and has served as the chair for the Nakata membership committee. Casey was elected to the Nakata board of directors for the 2006 to 2009 term, and while on the board, served as vice president for 2007 to 2008 and Nakata president for 2008 to 2009. Casey has presented at numerous NACADA annual and regional conferences and also authored chapters addressing LGBTQ issues. Casey is the past chair for the NACADA Sustainable Leadership Committee and was a NACADA Phoenix 2018 annual conference chair. Current NACADA involvement includes serving as a faculty member at the Advising Administrators Institute, Visiting campuses through the Nakata Academic Advising Consultant and Speaker Service, and a fellow for the Excellence in Academic Advising program working with Florida International University. Casey is a Colorado native and earned his bachelor's in speech communication at the University of Northern Colorado, and then completed his MS in college student personnel administration at Western Illinois University. Casey is an avid ASU Sun Devil athletics fan and enjoys traveling with his husband, Doug. And two dogs as much as possible, Casey. It's an honor. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you so much. This is this is my honor, and and I want to congratulate the two of you. I saw the posting where you, you it was your two thousandth download. That's awesome. Yes, you guys, this is awesome. That and and I think it's just a obviously a, a well received. Um, addition to Nakata resources and, and helping build the community. So, so thank you very much for what you guys are doing.
1: Thank you. Uh, we appreciate that, and I mean that is our aim. It's it's about building the community, and it's about getting people to share stories. And we are really interested in hearing some of your stories because uh, an absolute treasure trove of experience. But perhaps before we delve into that, Casey, maybe we could find out a little bit how you're getting on in this COVID-19 world, how it's impacted on you and your work.
3: Uh, Sure. Well, it's certainly an interesting time to be working in in higher ed. uh, Let's see, I think I just counted. I finished my eighth week. Uh, working from home uh, this last week. So I'm just starting my ninth week, but my team has been home 10 weeks. Um, I stayed on in the office a couple of weeks after they they left. Um, it's, you know, it's it, it, it's a challenging time, um, but it's also a time that the, there are a lot of silver linings where you see people coming together in ways that you haven't seen before. A lot of my interactions, I I mentioned uh, to one of you before we started recording here, we've already started orientation programs here at Arizona State University and um, obviously doing that from an online format. And in interacting with students and parents, they're they're very receptive and very appreciative of us trying to continue to maintain kind of some normalcy and helping them plan to get ready for the fall. but of course, there's a lot of nervousness and a lot of anxiety in terms of what's really going to happen. I mean, my institution, Arizona State, has, has stated that our intention is, is to be open in the fall and offering classes um, in, a, in a live format. Now, what that actually means in terms of will it be normal? I don't think so. I, I think there's going to be a lot of conversations about what is the new normal in terms of on-campus um, reality Um and then, you know, I, I know a lot of institutions like, you know, the CSU system there in California. You guys just announced that you're 500,000 on 23 campuses, I think it is. You're, you're staying online. And, you know, it's, it's it's interesting to just see how everybody is handling this. Um, ASU, fortunately for us, we've we've been in the online degree uh, completion program now for about well a long time. But really... Out of we have about one hundred and twenty thousand students at Arizona State University, and that's four physical campuses here in the Phoenix metro area. But now that includes almost thirty five thousand online students. And so a lot of our advisors have already kind of experienced that distance um, and were able to help the rest of us that hadn't done it. Um, So that that was some fortune that we had experience doing that. I'm anxious to see how this goes. And, you know, I still don't know when I'm going to return to my office. We we got an email last week that says, hold, you know, keep working. Well, we'll let you know and what's going to happen. But we're plugging through this and, and making the best of it as we can.
0: Yeah. And I guess you were talking about your orientations already started. So and with those being online, uh, what is being done to kind of still keep that engagement or connection piece uh, with with your incoming students
3: well I, I mean we're using the zoom format and and you know one of the things that i found exciting was when we first found out that we needed to be online and i mean we we felt like we we all needed to be these well polished you know speakers that you know you need it needs to be done really professionally and and, and people some people got hung up in that but what we found out is the students and parents they just want us to be genuine They just want us to, they don't care that we're going to, you know, maybe make a mistake or they don't even care if we're going to have a technology issue, which there were some, especially at the beginning, because everybody was getting used to it. But again, so far, uh, good reception. We've actually, in my college, used it to our advantage. We did, we usually did not have one on one advisor to student interactions during orientation. We changed our format and we now have the advisory meeting with each student individually in a zoom format and their family members if they want to we love it and we also know ASU is moving to a complete online process in 2021 anyway so this was practice for us and so yeah it's you know it, 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 we're, we're we're trying to stay engaged with our students making sure they're still coming to orientation all of our programs have been full so far so knock on wood hope that hope that continues for the rest of the summer
1: Casey, it's interesting there because I think what you spoke to is something I've noticed amongst students around the world. I've been doing a lot of traveling over the last couple of years and that desire for authenticity uh, amongst students and parents and not just the, the glossy brochures or the, the fancy presentations, but really that desire for connection. And it, it's something that I hear again and again, and I see among students. So it's interesting to hear that that's coming true in orientation. Um, now, we, we've talked a little bit about, you know, where where you're at and where you're going. But if we were to take you back a little bit and maybe talk to us about how you got into advising and and was there a particular inspiration or, or was it something that you fell into?
3: Well, for me, that's taking me back a little ways, actually. So, um I, I was thinking about that. And um, so I was an undergrad in, at University of Northern Colorado. My freshman year was fall of 1981. And um, I, I was a very uh, um, engaged student. I loved the interaction. I, I, I eventually got involved in housing um, RA positions and housing positions, Um one of my summer jobs, my last two years in Greeley, was I was a peer advisor for the orientation programs in the summer. And the second summer I was actually one of the leads. And and my job as a student was to sit down and help students register for classes and, and then talk to them about, you know, campus issues and things like that. And 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 I knew then And by that time, I had already figured out that I wanted to work in higher education. And and I love that. It was, as an undergrad, it was wonderful to just interact with students and parents. I was, even back then, I wasn't nervous about interacting with mom and dad. Um, I stayed in the housing route and worked as a hall director there at UNC for three years. And then in 1988, I uh, left to go to Western Illinois University to get my master's in higher education. I was still working in housing, so that was still kind of paying my bills and my my graduate assistantship. But during my graduate program, I took I had two practicums. I worked for a semester in the business advising office there at Western Illinois, and then for a full year, I actually worked with the one woman who was the athletic academic advisor at Western Illinois. I love that. I'm I, as you already mentioned, I'm a huge sports fan. Always have been. Uh, ASU Go Devils and and Colm and I we talked. About we're both Bronco fans. Being the Colorado native, the Broncos' training camp was in Greeley for many years. So, and I used to watch them a lot. But um, so in in grad school, I did the practicums, and then when I left, graduated with my master's, and <clears throat> excuse me, came to ASU. I was still working in housing administration, and um, and it was about four years into my career here at ASU in 1994 that an advisor position for undeclared no preference students is what we called them, here they issue back then. Um, and and I, at that time, both personally and professionally, I was ready to make some changes. Um, that 2 a.m. pager going off for housing administrations that was getting a little bit old. Um, and so I was very fortunate to get an academic advising position working with um, what we call exploratory students now. And so I did that for three years and then, um, and I love that. And and, and, and you know, it, it it was one thing about working in student affairs and support services, which is tremendously important, but being connected to the academic side of the house and for me, learning the curriculum at ASU and learning the policies and procedures, I, I just, I latched onto that. And I really enjoyed that. Um, still connected to orientation programs and those types of things. So I was an advisor for three years. And then um, one of those, My life has kind of been one of those being in the right place at the right time several times. And in the advising office I moved into, it was a small group of uh, six advisors. And the woman who uh, was the supervisor at the time, she was um, given some other assignments, including implementing our degree audit system, which back in the mid-90s was a big dang deal. And, you know, a lot of us didn't have that stuff back then. And she knew she was going to have a lot of time put into that. And so she needed somebody to, to manage the day-to-day advising operations. So I was hired as an assistant director. Luckily, and I can talk about this later, um, because of my housing experience and I had had so much supervision experience, I was able to get that advising position because I had the supervision experience. And and, and I was very fortunate. Um so in 96, that was the last time I applied for a job until most recently when I moved into the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences in 2018. My my administrative role, uh, for everything from a small office of six advisors to ultimately it became almost 30 advisors on four different campuses and online. Um, again, my, the college I was in was expanding and moving to different campuses, and so my position kept changing and growing just because of where I was at, um, and so, and and like I said, about mm, six to eight years ago, the whole online world became significant to me, and that was a huge learning curve for me. But I really enjoyed that, and it was it was a lot of it's the same, but you know, there's still a lot of people out there that think that online advising is easier and it's quicker, and it is exactly the opposite of those two things. It is not easier, and it is not quicker. Um, and, and, you know, and helping others understand that. So, um, in that administrative role, and then in, in 2018, the, the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences here at ASU, which I, I knew a lot of the people and I, I had uh, admired a lot of the people. It's the largest college right now at ASU, we're 27,000 just in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, which, which is about 23,000 undergrad. Our freshman class in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences is 3,000 students, so that college decided to make a significant change rather than the 19 different departments having all their own advising offices. Well, they, they kept those, but the college decided to make a change in um, creating a common experience for first-year students and new transfer students. And in uh, a position opened up that I thought, why not? You know, I'm, I'm probably within hopefully five, six, seven years of retiring. And I thought this would be a neat challenge to kind of, to go out on. And so I, I decided to apply and was very fortunate to get hired. And and that's what I'm doing. So uh, supervising 21 professional advisors at three directors uh, directly in in a, in a, in a centralized hub for the freshmen and new transfers. Now I don't supervise the, the 19 different department advisors, but I'm work very closely with them and it's, it's all one advising program in the college. So it's been a challenge, but it's been wonderful meeting a lot, new, a lot of new people, uh, administrators, advisors, faculty. Um, and so that, so that's kind of been my journey for academic advising.
0: And I mean, so most recently now with your role, like how do you balance all that where you, you supervise certain individuals, but then others that you don't supervise, but you have to work with, but it's, you know, got this common advising, uh, structure going on. How do you, how do you make that work?
3: Um, to me, it's relationship building. I think it's absolutely critical whether you are the direct supervisor or you are kind of the, the responsibility without the authority um, position. It's about building relationships and 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 I've been very fortunate. It was I was fortunate when I moved into this college because like I said, I had been at ASU for at that time 28 years already. So I knew a lot of people. Um, and and coming in and trying to build you know do something in a large scale like it was I, I think the, I, I, the the knowledge and experience I had at ASU but then just being genuine and being being willing to hey, you know admit I don't know yet I don't know what we want to do we, but we need to go where we want to go and taking into consideration what my deans were saying, yet what the advisors were experiencing, um, and, and taking, you know, at that time, taking the freshmen away from the departments, which some of them were not happy about just managing all that and managing the relationships, I think is absolutely critical. And being willing to admit, you know, that even though you have experience, sometimes when you're doing something new, you, you may not know how it's going to go and, it, and being willing to admit it's okay. Let's try this. And if we need to make changes or adapt, that's fine. We will do that based on what the student, how our experience is with students, and 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 what their experience is, and how we can affect their ability to be retained and you know ultimately graduate from our institution, which um, which is the ultimate goal. And so that's why we the changes. And so far, so good. It's going well.
1: Now, Casey, you have had a, a storied history with Nakada being the vice president, being the president, how did you initially get involved with Nakata?
3: Yeah, so back in 1996 when I had been an advisor, even my first couple of years as an advisor, I never heard of Nakata um, in 96 when that my supervisor at the time hired me to become that assistant director, um, she I remember I was hired in like August, August or September of 96. And, and I was excited about getting the job, and she was talking to me about, uh, about the new responsibilities. And she mentioned, "Oh, and by the way, you and I are going to a conference in Washington D.C. in October for this Professional Advising Association." And I'm like, "Okay, you know, I, I, I heard nothing. I knew I didn't know about it, Nakata. Um, I had never been to Washington D.C., so I was really excited about that." Um, but it was, it was really nice. I, I mean, we, we, when I got to the association, you know, of course I was wide, eyes wide open, like it was all new. I had had some experience with ACPA and NASPA, some of the more traditional um, student affairs associations. But it was, even at the beginning, I could tell that Nakata was, was it was something different, something special, um, just coming in as, as a new person. And, 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 and the sessions applied directly to what I was trying to do as an advisor and as an administrator. So that was my first experience in, in 96. And then my next experience was in 98, which I talked about with my my uh, greatest memory, uh, the conferences in San Diego. And at that time, I had a staff of about, by then it was about 10 people, 15 people. We, we, we shut down the office. We took the whole team to NACADA in San Diego. And that is where I met um, many people. It was the first time I got connected with, um, the LGBT group, which it was just getting started and, and the commission was forming and, and had a chance to meet with Randy Jadley, who was the first LGBT commissions, uh, uh chairperson. And then I also met this other guy named Charlie Nutt in 1988 in San Diego. And he and I just kind of connected and, um, it, it hasn't stopped since. And, and, and uh, ever since San Diego, I mean, it, it was just something through that commission and, and, and working with them that kept me coming back, kept me um, wanting to learn more. Um, so I, I ran for the commission chair in 2000, got that. Then I moved into the NACADA, when NACADA first had our NACADA council, I was fortunate to be one of the first uh, NACADA council reps from the division. Uh, then um, ran for the board of directors and actually did not win the first time I ran. So I and did some other things, and then ran again and, and got on in 2006, 2009, uh, pre- vice president, president, which was awesome. Um, one of my highlights is president, besides um, signing the the paperwork to change the the name of Nakata and 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 do the whole globalization thing. Was I got to go to Liverpool in the United Kingdom for to a conference, and that was my first time traveling abroad to Europe, and and so it was a uh, that was neat. And the thing about that, and, and Colm, I think you'll really appreciate this. Um, I was thinking, what am I going to say? What, they're not going to care about what I'm experiencing at Arizona State University, and, and I'm not a faculty member, which most, many, at least in, in the United Kingdom, them they were all faculty. But I learned real quickly, you know, when you start talking about student success and you just want to make a difference for your students and you want to create an environment where your students can be successful, none of that other stuff mattered. It was all a common goal. And and that was a that was a real positive thing for me in, in that international conference in the UK. And I know it continues today with the, with conferences every year. Um, and then after my time as a uh, board of directors, um, I had started being a consultant. I really Really enjoy the consulting. Um, I learn just as much as I hopefully help other institutions with, and you know, and how people w- operate, why they do what they do. I, I, I think it's you know, each campus is unique, and each campus has a it has has their own administration, their own philosophy, mission goals, all that stuff we're talking about, and and I. It, I always find myself asking, well, why do I do it the way I do it at ASU? And and why wouldn't how they do it here work better? Um, So I've been very fortunate. And and the other thing with Nakata, you mentioned, Matt, that I I really like to travel. Uh, Doug and I, my spouse and I, we were talking the other day, and and I think I'm down to five states left in the United States that I haven't been in. And it's because of Nakata that I've been in all those other states um, and now, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Europe and, and and so all of that was fun. So um, this new thing with the EAA, the Excellence in Academic Advising, uh, the partnership between Nakata and the John Gardner Institute, it's outstanding. It's got a lot of potential. I, I definitely think this is kind of the wave of the future in, in helping institutions. Sorry, my dog is barking. So no, that's man. absolutely fine. <laughs> This is the new normal right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the, with EAA and, and, and getting institutions to be able to take a longer, harder look at why they do things the way they do them, look at years and years of data, look at survey results. I'm learning a lot, and I know I, I've been working with Florida International University uh, Charlie and Valerie there are the liaisons, and, and it's been a wonderful experience, and we're almost done with two years. We, we, the report's done now. We're looking at doing some implementation, um, but that's what I'm doing in the association mostly right now is the EAA and the consulting um, and and I, I I love it. It's
0: I guess it's almost what are you not doing? <laughs> well, there
3: there are many things that I I haven't. Done.
0: But I guess with that, you know, you're talking about all things you you, you know you've done in Nakata, how great Nakata is, sharing your Nakata memories. Um, so one for me, and I, and I kind of mentioned this in in the first podcast, but that was also meeting you, um, at the 2015 annual conference in Las
3: Vegas. Yeah. Great picture, by the way. Was that on Facebook the other day?
0: No. So that one, that, that one is actually from, uh, Phoenix.
3: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah.
0: But I, I think I, I have a selfie or a picture with you from, from each conference. Um, although I think. I think Louisville, I forgot to get one with you. Oh, that's right. <laughs> but but with, with Vegas, why that one is so important. I, I started going to conferences in 2013, but 2015 is kind of my mindset where I feel like that's where, in a way, that's where I first started going. And when I first started, I, I got it in terms of what Nakata was. Uh-huh. And so I did a poster session with my now boss. And I remember there was a Twitter competition that the conference committee wanted to do prior to the conference starting. And so I did... I did some tweets uh, with some of my Pop Funko Karate Kid figures about how the Karate Kid wanted to go to the advising conference in Vegas. And surprisingly, it, it won. And, That's not a surprise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it got me lunch with uh, you, with Casey Self. And and I, I told Charlie, I said, um, years later and, and at the conference last year, I said, I didn't know who Casey was at that point. I knew that you were the keynote speaker uh, the night before. Uh, and you also sang oh, uh, God, no. at, at that <laughs> keynote. <laughs> we won't ask you to sing. Don't worry. Although if you want, I thought you have a great voice. And we went to what Bobby Flay's uh, restaurant at Caesar's Palace. And that's where, you know, that hour of lunch was very influential because you started talking about everything that's so great about Nakata. Yes. And what I found also fascinating was just how humble you were because You didn't come out of the gate and say that you were a past president. Like that came up like halfway through our lunch because my boss asked a question about administration that then led to you talking about it. So I feel like had he not asked that, it would never have gotten brought up. But, you know, you really kind of explained academic advising in a nutshell and just, you know, connecting with individuals and collaborating and and having those partnerships. But then it's, you know, you're so real. But one of the things he said was, all right, if you ever need anything, let me know. And I kind of took it as one of those like, yeah, I think he says that to everyone kind of thing. And I didn't think you would remember me after that. And then the following year in Atlanta, um, we were at the award ceremony. And so I I won an award there. And I remember sitting and I saw you at the table at one of the tables in the front. And I was like, oh, that's Casey. He probably doesn't remember me. Award ceremony's done. I walk up to you and before I can say anything, you give me like this bear hug. And you're like, I'm so proud of you. I was telling people when you walked across the stage, I know him. I had lunch with him the year before. And and then after that, um, I think we probably exchanged a few emails. And then I figured like, oh, he's not going to remember who I am. And then about a year later, we had our California Collaborative Conference and we were looking for a keynote. And I said, I might know someone. And I pulled out your business card. I had it in my desk and messaged you and said, "Hey, would, do you remember me? And, and would, do you want to be our, our keynote speaker?" And you said, "Absolutely." Now, what's also great is uh, what a lot of people don't know is how you had to rearrange your schedule to make that work because you had another conference you were you needed to get to, <laughs> and you re- rearranged your travel plan. so that way you could drive from Arizona to California, do the keynote. And then drive back so you can fly out to go to your conference. And
3: I had forgotten about. Yeah, you're right. I flew out the next (laughs) day.
0: (laughs) So that those memories, you know, stick with me till this day. And I just appreciate everything that that you've done. Not you know, not only for Nakata, but for me. And you know, you you keep your word. You know, and I think that's very. Appreciative for a lot of people
3: well I appreciate that Matt but I'll I tell you what I, I, I hope that you know the two of you I hope that anybody who chooses to listen to this I hope you do ask people that have been involved for a long time and that you do you know go talk to the president go talk to the vice president board members council members and th- th- most of us mean when, when we say please let us know if you need anything and, and, I, and I think that's one of the things about the association that I just, I will never be able to repay back what the association has given me. It's, it's, it's the relationships that I talked about, but it's, it's the, it's the networking. Yeah. I was actually in a meeting this morning, a zoom meeting on my, on campus with, um with our study abroad folks here at ASU and we, we had a student situation we were trying to um, deal with. And um. They study abroad. Had just hired a new director, who came from the University of Tennessee, and so I was asking him, "Oh, do you know Karen Sullivan Vance? Uh, do you know Ruth Darling?" And and of course he did. And then the, my colleague from the Provost Office was like, "One thing you got to learn about KZ—he knows everybody. He knows everybody." And it, but but it, that's what Nakata does. You meet so many people, and you and you make those connections. And when you really need help, and you need something's go, not going right, or, or you, there are people that are sincere, they are some of the most sincere people. And 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 I, I hope that anybody that's younger, a newer, you got it. You got to take a risk and just go talk to them, meet them, and then keep their card and email them. Or, or hey, remember I met you at the conference, or I had this issue. Um, and 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 that's that's where you're going to get the most out of this association.
1: So, Casey, one of the things I suppose when we're doing these interviews, sometimes or I'm chatting to people, I just and I said this to to Megumi, I le- like a word keeps bouncing around my head, and when talking to you, it's curiosity, and I think that's a good term in terms of Nakata as well. And I think what you're talking about is is retaining that sense of curiosity and and always carrying that with you and. I suppose I think you have demonstrated that time and time again. But delving a little bit into maybe your your time as president of NACADA, could, you know, could you talk to us maybe about what it's what it's like being president? But also for those people out there who are listening to this, who are advisors, who are looking to maybe get into leadership positions, take on uh, you know additional responsibility. Are there particular advice that you'd offer them? Are there things that they can do practical steps.
3: You know, I don't know that there's any magic steps except to just keep trying. I, I mean, you know, start off as just a you know a, a reader for conference proposals, or start off as you know a, a, a steering committee member, or something like that, and and that's where you're going to get to know people. Um, I think uh, as you get to know more people, and then you know, eventually, either an appointed or an elected position, um, and 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 again. Don't if you don't get elected the first time, do it again. I mean, and that's where you you know you'll get to know people, uh, and and keep trying in different ways. Um, like I said, I, the first time I ran for the board of directors, I didn't I didn't get elected. So, um, but I just I, I just encourage people to do it, and, and 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 it's going to come back twofold in terms of just not only developing your own leadership skills and your own networking for your own personal and and professional but it's, it's, it's just those continued relationships that, that you're going to, you're going to maintain. Um, you know, the board of directors, when I, when I came on um, in 2006, there were uh, uh, Rich and Terry were my, there's three people that come on at once. And um, Rich and Terry and I came on at once. And we, we were, you know, the wide eyed, uh, we were like, what the heck did we get ourselves into? And there was, you know, there's always some controversy and there's always some things, you know, that weren't going well. And that was actually in 2000, you know, about the time that um, we were we were doing that was when, when they were looking at some different organizational skills. But the main thing was, is, is, is for me as president and vice president, first of all, the vice president got to work with the council and and, and, and the divisions. Uh, with the regions and the commissions and interest groups. And I know it's called the advising communities now um, and all the administrative. That's where the work is done. And that's where you're going to learn more and you're going to get involved and, 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 you know, be involved in the nitty gritty of the association. This really is a member driven association. Um, and, and and coming up into the, the board and then eventually vice president and president, i I never had a perception that, you know, as president, I was going to make these grand changes or, you know, these these big, big ideas that everything needed to change. Yeah, I, I had some ideas about some things that could be potentially different. Um, the, like I mentioned earlier, one of the highlights was the internationalization. And that was when Nakata first started kind of thinking about how are we going to do this? How you know, why would people from the UK or from Europe or from Australia or, you know, you know, China, Korea, why would, why would they care about what we're doing? But we've talked about that. Student success is student success. And we all have the same issues and, 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 and it, and it exploded. And, and and it's been a wonderful experience in just connecting with all of those individuals. Um, and now having board representation internationally, um, and, and officers and things like that. One of the things, um, as president, I, I'll never forget this. And, and actually, Matt, when you and I were talking about this, you reminded me of this. So it was, I was, it was in the Chicago conference in 2008, I believe it was, <clears throat> where I was incoming as president, and I remembered I wasn't feeling all that well, and I was in my room in Chicago, and that is when the stock market crashed. I mean, I was at Chicago, at the Nakata Conference in Chicago when the stock market literally just crashed. And so then we had this whole year very similar to what we're all dealing with now. What's everybody going to do for funding? Are people going to lose jobs? Are people going to, you know, are, are you going to be able to travel for professional development? And as an association, we needed to step back and think, okay, what can we still do? To offer professional development, offer networking, offer connecting that may not cost money, because people aren't going to have money to spend for the next few years, and 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 that's where I think the association really started to think about how we can do things. It's not it's not all about you know conferences, um, and it, it, it's about how do we maintain the connections now globally, um, even when we can't we can't be together in person. Um, but th- those are some of the things I remember about, you know, moving into the leadership role, uh, and especially my time as president. Um, I remember there was a, there was a three and a half week period that I was not in my office because I, I went to five different conferences in a row. One of them being in, in Liverpool, but I'll tell you the, my team at home and my, my deans and, and my, my support network here, They were so supportive and they really, really stepped up for me. And I can't tell you how much I appreciated that in being able to be connected in in those three and a half, four weeks, literally out of the country for my obligations with Nakata. And that was wonderful. Um, So I'm very grateful for that.
0: Yeah. And you were talking about the stock market crash. I know, you know, we were going, discussing the podcast and how you used to write like the uh, from the president, like kind of blog post. And the one uh, we're kind of referring to is a demonstrating adaptability in a challenging economic climate. And I remember when I was reading that it was just, wow, there's so much parallels to right now. And you know, you refer to and I can quote from here, like you put everything was still centered around the student like and for us to not forget that. Because you put in the midst, midst of this turmoil with will be the students who show up every day on our doorsteps, who email us, who recall in the panic with their emergency situations. But as professionals, we must never forget that our students' needs must come first, even when our lives are altered. Um, and you even talked about how academic advisors have always helped with a variety of student issues. However, as budget cuts are considered, it may become even more important that we be aware of the wide variety of knowledge and assistance we as academic advisors provide on a day-to-day basis. And it's even being online in this format, like it's still relevant right now. So I guess with that, do you have any suggestions on, as, as we um, wrap up in the next few minutes with this, uh, any suggestions on areas uh, that we at all different levels, whether we're at an administrator level, institution level, advisor level, things we should consider on how we can still be a resource to our students?
3: well, I think I think the main thing is is to continue to realize that this is about the student. I mean, uh, you know, yes, all of us have our personal challenges, uh, whether it's uh, how things are affecting us directly. But in our professional lives, I mean, we we are about the student and we need, we need, and and I would expand that, you know, to the student and their support network because let's face it, you know, family members, parents, guests, I mean they're they're very connected to this. I was just on a phone call two days ago or, or last Friday with a f- parents from California who were sending their son here to ASU and, and they wanted to know the scoop on what, what I knew. And I'm like, we don't know yet. I mean, but they were very, very grateful. But I think we have to realize that it's up, it's about the student as advisors. And I've always talked about this. Academic advisors have a knowledge base about the institution that goes beyond many other service areas. And it's because we have to have that basic knowledge to be able to help our students. And so now more than ever, I think it's really important that academic advisors not be afraid to, oh, you have questions about financial aid or, you know, or or registrar or the health center or whatever, housing, whatever the issue is, we need to take it upon ourselves to at least have basic knowledge and be willing to share basic knowledge still referring to the experts but but that's our role we we we've got to we've got to step up and 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 help those students feel comfortable about it you know i mean i'm i'm hoping this isn't the case i know i talked about this in the article back in 2009 but if budget cuts come i mean there are going to be people who will lose positions advisors usually are are some i think some of the last ones to lose positions because we know so much about so much of the university that in a way we kind of make ourselves a little bit invo- you know, invaluable. And, and and I'm not saying that means we're not going to lose positions, but but we do have a knowledge base that is unmatched in a lot of ways about how to help students directly. And so we need we need to not forget that, and we need to continue to provide that and make ourselves better at doing that. So that's, that's the advice I would say, especially in the next six to 12 months or however long this whole thing is going to last, We can't forget that. And we have to be part of the solution. A lot of times advisors, anybody, Oh, that's not my role. Or that's, that's beyond, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the expert in that area. I I, I get that, but we have to be willing to work with the student and be a little bit more of an expert in areas that we can help them and, and not just shun things off because that's not my job or that's not my responsibility. Um, be more supportive, more than you've ever been before.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And I think that's really sage advice, Casey, and what you're saying in terms of centering the student. I I knew I'd made the right decision in moving to the institution I'm at now when I was at new staff orientation and the president came in to talk to us and he looked around the room and he said, look, the most important thing I'm going to say here today is that we're all here for students. And as we face into this level of uncertainty, the advice that you've offered today is something that we can carry forward. And, and I think it's not just applicable to NACADA. I think it's applicable to people who are outside of Nakata, and not just to adv- academic advisors, but also those who are involved in all aspects of student affairs and, and student support. It has been absolutely fantastic chatting to you. I, I think we could probably spend another hour or so delving into uh, the stories that you have from your trips and your conferences over the year. But thank you for taking the time to speak with Matt and I today. It's been wonderful.
3: Well, it's been my pleasure. And and, and again, I just I, I can't tell you how much I'm proud of both of you for what you're doing and what you're adding to the association and and, and continuing to build our community and, and the support network. So thank you very much for allowing me to be part of this. I appreciate it.
1: Matt. Casey was a joy to interview and I hadn't realized that he was a fellow Broncos fan. So that was pleasing to hear. And I think it was really interesting to hear that somebody who had already accomplished so much in his career then took on this challenge. And it's great to hear how excited he is about that challenge and he, he's retained that enthusiasm. So he has all of this knowledge, all of this experience. He has gone on to, to do so much. And yet he retains that passion for advising, for working with students. And I think it's infectious. I think he has brought so much to the advising community writ large. So for us, I think, to have the opportunity to get to share his story alongside DeWan's story has
0: been really fascinating to, to hear. Yeah, and really shout out to DeWan Jackson and Casey Sell for being part of this episode. You two are amazing, and I look forward to seeing you both in person, hopefully soon. But this wraps up our episode. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can reach out to us on social media at advising podcast. Our question of the week is an oldie but goodie at the Louisville conference. We asked conference attendees what Nakata meant to you. So we had posted it on social media and I decided it'd be great to put it on this episode and, and share it with our podcast listeners. So we have a lot of Nakata members that are in this. So too many to name. So sorry about that. So here you go. And I look forward to our upcoming podcast episodes. See you then. So, what does Nakata mean to you?
1: Nakata means to me
2: building a sense of community worldwide, and of course, hugs. Hey! <laughs> it's all about the friendships and the people I have met, and I just love my job.
0: Nakata means opportunity—the opportunity to connect, the opportunity to grow, the opportunity to see academic
3: advising as something more than the job you do every day.
1: It means home. It feels like home. Um, and although we come from different institutions two years, four years, what have you. There's a sense of community here, there's a connection
3: here. Advising is home for me. Um, It's where I kind of grew up professionally. And for me, um, Nakata is the opportunity to immerse myself in that and to to live in that space that feels like home. Um, And it is partially the people and partially the work. Um, And I think it's it's a, a unique opportunity to be with people who get you and that's what this is for me.
2: Nakada means Uh, global sharing happiness for me.
0: So wherever you are, just be on the lookout, and I would say don't be afraid to take chances. I mean that's, uh, to to paraphrase Brene, it's not really paraphrasing, it's actually quoting. Dare greatly, take
3: chances. Um, Making quick friends with people who share the same passion.
0: Nakata is my professional home. It's where I come every year to get refreshed, get new ideas, connect with colleagues that I see continuously every year.
2: Nakata means growth, professional growth, and really taking myself outside of my comfort zone to learn, grow, develop, and contribute globally. Nakata to me really means connection and understanding. I think my most important professional relationships have come through my involvement in this organization and just really finding a like minded group of people who. Get what I do and can really help me be better, and so I really appreciate that from the Nakata family.
3: Nakata means that there are thousands of other people out in the world who know what advising is like and who care about it as much as I do.
0: Uh, Nakata means to me more
3: professional development learning. Um, you know, going into a student-centric model globally. It's important that we understand the student and not work with assumptions, and
2: Nakata provides that opportunity. It really means coming together, being able to gain from professional development, but also give to professional development. And the networking has been amazing, so Lifeline colleagues that will follow me way past retirement
3: transformative mentoring relationships that help define the future of our industry and of the future of higher education in both America and around the world.
2: Nakata to me has just meant a professional home and a very big network family.
0: Old Nakata has been really influential in helping our office connect, engage, and succeed. With all of the resources and connections that we've made and all the professional events, such as the Administrators Institute and the annual conference. It's definitely the people. I love the relationships that I've, I've gotten to make and, and see the, the cool things that our committees are planning and the work that they're doing uh, is really rewarding.
3: Commonality, where I find love, acceptance and appreciation I when I first joined Nakata and I started getting involved in Nakata, I thought I was not I was going to be rejected and the opposite happened I've been welcomed um, and loved and I found a group
2: of friends that I have bonds for forever
3: but more so friendships I um have really had the chance to grow in my excitement about advising and have the resources there to support me, but also the conversations that make advising exciting and working with students more enjoyable. So that's what Necotta means to me. It means family and it means help and it means love and it means dedication to each other.